Okay. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Notes from the Aleph. An Aleph is a high point from which all things are visible, and from our vantage point today, we'll be looking at tabletop role-playing games, their design, and the theory behind those designs. Around here, our motto is to be fair, build up, and have fun. I'm your host, Griffin Bro, joined by our editor, Theta, our local designer, Norman Rafferty, and our good friends and GMs, Red Rabbit, and today, Rob. Uh, Rob, what's your last name? Uh, Grosso, yes. Robert Grosso, there we go. Awesome. Uh, when it comes to tabletop role-playing games, I have 15 years of experience running, playing, and frequently fixing problematic rules at the table, pronouns he, him, they, them. Uh, Red, why don't you go second? Hi, Red Rabbit here. I'm running our Iron Claw game on Wednesday mornings and now playing in our it's not Torchbearer anymore, Forbidden Lands game on Sunday mornings. Um I am a <laughs> lover of many different types of esoteric tabletop role-playing games. I consider myself a student of both narrative design and of mechanical design. Alright, Rafferty, you're up next. Hello world, I'm Norman Rafferty, he, him, I work for Sanguine Games, I'm angry at make-believe. Um, I be, uh, started working in game design because uh, the game, many of the games out there make me angry. Grr, why are they like that? And so uh, we're spending a lot of time on this podcast discussing why these things make us angry and we can fix them. Because even after 30 years, there's still like one or two things to fix. Otherwise, it's, it's fine. Of course, yeah, no problems at all. Uh, and Robert. Hi, everybody. My name is Rob Grasso, as uh, Griffin said. Uh, he, him pronouns. I am a GM also for the Rackus channel. I'm GMing the Pathfinder game on Wednesday nights. I also, my day job is a teacher. I actually work as a college professor. And my night job is just playing games and uh, writing for the website techraptor.net. All right. Wonderful. And now that we're all here, so today, um, we love to talk about design here on this podcast, but sometimes you got to take what's been written down and actually run it. So today, our focus is actually going to be on tips for being the best game master you can be and other such things. So we have a every single person here is running a game. Is that correct? I'm pretty sure. Rafferty, you've, you've definitely run for people and not just groused at them. Once or twice. Once or twice. Uh, so who wants to open the floor with their best GM tips? Oh, let's go with, well, let's go with Rob. You're, you're new. So fresh meat, fresh meat. Oh, yes, yeah. fresh meat, fresh meat. Come on. Is, is this where I'm sacrificed now? Uh, absolutely. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, best, first and best tip I can always give is that be prepared for everything to be thrown out the window by session two. There you go. You have, I think no, we... yeah, I think we can all agree on that. <laughs> I think we've had some talks before about like uh, overly expecting something out of a narrative and trying to keep to it too hard. Uh, I think that's been like a subject before around here, right? Uh, in fact, speaking of how that subject's come up before, that's why we had something called Session Zero. I mean, like I'm going to be expect everything to be thrown out the window. Everything! Yeah. <laughs> we haven't even started yet, and you should be throwing everything out the window. To add to it, though, have a backup plan with it, too. Because if yeah. you are expecting something to go one way, you need to have at least maybe two, maybe three things to throw in if it goes another way. You know, I, I'm sure everybody has like different war stories or anything like that that they can talk about with various games. Oh, uh, hey, are, are we like a minute into the podcast? We uh, are. Yes, I haven't on. mentioned the Mercer effect yet. Hey, there you go. 
I was wondering um, when you would. Sorry. But I mean, well, I mean, like building on what Rob has just said, one of, you know, once again, Rafferty complains about streamers. Like one problem is uh, like what Rob's addressing here, it strikes me as like, it's a kind of an older problem because when you watch those streamers, uh, it's an attitude of old school gamers like us, that the game is some sort of emergent property that we're supposed to beat into submission. Like we're a bunch of angry gamers and also the world's trying to kill us. Everybody loves Tomb of Horrors. Oh, you're reaching a pit and your arm gets chopped off. Um, you know, everything you, you, so you're supposed to fight everything. And also you have a special character. If you're playing a game like Vampire, ooh, look at me. Hey, uh, um, I'm the 11th generation and my sire is the Malkavian Primogen. Um, you know, all like, like you're supposed to be, you know, very special and enabled. Once again, not a problem with that. But then people come to the table and they expect that the game is going to revolve around them and what they do, which is direct odds with what Rob's talking about, which is like, well, what about your plans? And the reason why I'm angry at the Mercer effect is because the players who show up at that table are professional actors who were hired to have fun, have fun with it. But also they know there's a plan. There's a director in front of them who has a plan and they know that the storyline needs to continue. So they're going to roll with it. And one reason why those games work a lot easier is because those players showed up with the attitude that I'm not supposed to disrupt the storyline. And so if you have players who already come with an attitude of don't disrupt the storyline, then that's not a problem. Uh, yeah, you know, but I'm just mentioning that out loud because since we're old school gamers, like this is a new concept. You won't see anywhere in the book uh, uh, like uh, in a Dungeons and Dragons or Vampire book that says, okay, whatever you do, go with the flow. And, and as a player, don't disrupt the story. Don't do that. You won't see that in the text. Yeah. So I then think to throw this back at Rob then. So uh, how is it that you usually plan? Like give, give me like uh, an, an example, abstract or not. It actually really depends on the game and the type of story and well type of narrative that we might be doing so for example mm -hmm. you know uh if we're doing like let's say uh dnd or pathfinder adventure path that is somewhat familiar you know like something that's already pre-written pre-generated so the plan is we'll try and see how much we can stay within book but always be prepared to go off book at the same time so that's where like getting like two or three different scenarios uh, come into play. And I am a big fan of doing like the pre-generated adventure stuff, mostly because you do have some pretty good ideas in there. And there's also with your party, with your players, an expectation that you are there to go through some sort of story, or at least the beats of a story or general narrative to follow. If it's a more open-ended game, like I've run with Iron Claw, or I've run with, uh, you know, D&D 4th &D and 5th and things like that, and 3rd, and even back in the day, it was, it would be more so, I have like the opening setting, right? The opening bit, like whatever that might be. Uh, you know, the, the old like cliche, you're starting in a tavern type of thing. That's where everybody meets. Got a quick adventure. Uh, you know, sometimes it's not even a tavern. What I like doing is there's a carnival or festival going on. Bad stuff happens afterwards. You're all kind of thrust into the situation now. And um, then from there, see how long they stay on that path. But if they deviate, if there's any changes, all right, well, we can improvise, you know, here or there. There's like two or three other scenarios, like little, almost like other lingering threads or hooks that you can throw in to 
just follow what the players do in that regard. So it's like it, it really is dependent on the nature of the players. Uh, it, I guess this is like the second tip. The nature of the players and how they plan on playing should be something to take into consideration. Uh, because it is dependent on the type of adventure you want to play and the expectations the players could have for what they are trying to play here as well. Oh, yeah. Like, I want to add to that because, like, all, all of what you said is good advice. I, I think one of the major, I mean, what you're saying is really you need to plan for what might happen and you should plan for more than one thing. Because this has come up on the podcast before where I complain, like, you read a lot of older adventures and they would say, like, okay, you're supposed to go kill Loth. But on the way there, you might have to deal with these hill giants here's several things that might happen with the hill giants. You might walk in there, you might set fire to the building outside. Didn't somebody here bring up that there's rules for that? Uh, I think there's, uh, I know at least in D&D, there's like plenty of fire rules out there. No, I mean, but, but if you read the adventure, there's a specific paragraph. What if the players decide to burn the building down? Like, yeah, that's, and that that's what I'm getting as like that's written into the adventure. I'm often hearing uh, like as a game master, you should be ready to improvise. But also when you're crafting your when you're crafting the adventure, you should be thinking there might be multiple ways for this to play out. In, in fact, something that just occurred to me when we were talking here is I'm seeing a lot more games coming out that talk about everyone's a player because well, no one wants to be the GM because being a GM is a lot of work, and so people want GM those games. But they also think, what if everyone's a player? Well, if everyone's a player, what if you as the game master are the player? As a player, you no one thinks a player can dictate the entire adventure. Like, no one thinks a player can show up and say, okay, I walk in, kill the bad guy, and walk out with all the treasure and get all the rewards. No die roll needed. I just said I did that. Like, no one would let a player get away with that. But a GM right. is expected to be able to have villains show up, their schemes succeed, their plans do, they can cast spells and have monsters that don't exist, that you've never seen anywhere. Like, a GM is, gets that privilege. And it's like, well, what if you didn't have that privilege? Or what, or, or what could you do besides invoking that? If you, you know, don't think like, a, like an author who's writing a story. Think about your characters as if you were a player. If you have villains who want to do this, you know, or want to get this stuff done, they would have resources and they would have to work in the world like another player to do it. I'm a much big, I think if you start thinking in that approach as a GM, it's not a story that your players perform in. That's Mercer stuff. Fun, but it's Mercer stuff. If you're thinking of your game as the players are actors, agents in a game that they can mold, then the NPCs in the game have to mold. Because I heard Rob talking about like how, I mean, he even said it like, like a modern game doesn't do this. Like, I thought that was kind of weird. Like, you know, like we were saying old school game, like D&D 3 would have you as an agent. But in a modern game, it, the adventure might be more scripted. It's like, why? What changed? Is there anything in the text that says they're scripted now? Well, that goes back to what I think we talked about. What I, I brought up in another one of our podcasts about how people kind of like work backwards and everybody wants to be the dude on the cover of the book with the sword and the shield fighting the red fire breathing dragon. And I yeah. think that's where that comes from, is that there's um, when people play published adventures, there's an expectation they're going to get to do the epic things that they see in the, you know, in the book art. And because of that, the books need to kind of lead you by the nose to those encounters. Um, I mean, that's my own personal theory, why it's become more and more like that. 
the the story of your character isn't the weird random stuff that they actually have agency over it is whether or not they beat the boss at the end of the thing which means they better get to that boss i mean i I would say you're right uh i mean i think it's a combination of factors it's both because people watch critical role and they say i want to be like that and critical role is like that where it's scripted and the fun of it comes in the performance on the way there but also um i mean i mean i've been talking about like video games are often presented that way you mass effect you build whatever colonel shepherd you want to play and then every quest is open to you and the story revolves around you and it will get all the way in the mass, you know, even though everyone complains about the ending of mass effect three, they still played it all the way to the end of mass effect three. They still went through one and two and um, you know, Ubisoft uses this same paradigm for a gazillion assassin's creed adventures. And um, I mean, that that's what people are exposed to the old school games in the seventies and the eighties. They didn't have computer games or, you know, like in front of them to use as their model. You know, they didn't go play World of Warcraft and then say, okay, that's how it works in World of Warcraft. I'll apply that logic to my game today. The, you know, and, and I'm not saying like that that's better because once again, I keep complaining about Tomb of Horrors. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, uh, it's, it's a question of that kind of emergence. And there's a difference, I guess, in gaming style. Oh my God, is Skyrim already 10 years old? Yeah, yeah, it is over 10 years least. old now. Yeah. Oh my God. Because Skyrim's like the last holdout of that kind of emergent. And even then it made concessions that, well, you can't kill anybody who's important. I've never seen any published tabletop game that says, by the way, declare these NPCs completely unkillable. No matter what the players do, just tell them it doesn't work. I've never seen a tabletop game say that. But <laughs> I have seen DMs fight tooth and nail to save important NPCs to make sure that they don't actually have anything bad happen to them. Right, and I've seen this in published. So it's adventures. informal. Yeah, I've seen in published adventures where they have like the scripted combat encounter where you fight a bad guy and then the bad guy gets away automatically. Mm-hmm. And it's like they're doing that because they've seen that in the computer games, and yet the problem you're running into right there is that dissonance where. If you're playing a Mass Effect game and the bad guy just gets away in, in, in a scripted cutscene, people will still give this game 9 out of 10 or 10 out of 10 because it's what they expect out of the game. But then you get to the tabletop game and, you know, you in any group of four or five players, one of them is probably going to chime in because, you know, it's not one player, it's five. One of them will get angry and saying, wait a minute, this isn't a computer game. You're a person across the table that I can appeal to. No one listened to my Mass Effect rants on the message board saying they should rewrite the ending the way I wanted, but now you're stuck in a room with me. <laughs> no, it's true. I also, But I also want to step up and defend a little bit of the GM perspective there too, because a lot of times DMs will get, GMs will get accused of doing this out of, you know, protecting their babies, right? They don't want their precious NPCs to die or they don't want their big bad villain to die in the first round. That is a thing. But also when you're talking about scripted adventures and things too, there is a degree of if you kill this guy who's supposed to be alive, you know, 50 pages from now, you're making more work for me because that means that I have to get creative. And for the rest of this adventure to keep working as written, I need to put in more work, you know, and a lot of people don't want to do that. But the frustrating thing I have is if you're going to do that, then in your session zero and in your planning, you should look at your players and tell them, hey, sometimes I'm going to let my NPCs do stuff and get away. Rafferty, the book said that it's a game about choice and it did not say that 
Yes. Is, is it a game about choice? How dare you imply that we might not have choices over what happens over our characters' well, actions? Because it's kind of funny, because I think I, I brought this up before, one of the, the things uh, that I thought was some of the worst gaming advice I ever read. But it's written by Robin Laws, who I think is the name Rob knows, right? Vaguely. Oh, I've okay. heard of this guy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Robin Laws wrote a game called Hill Folk. You'll see Hill Folk. It's all these, like, you know, great stuff. And one of the bits of advice in the game was, like, okay, so your, your hero sees their arch nemesis across the street, pulls out a gun, spends all their luck points, and tries to shoot them because they hate this guy and they want to kill him. It's written down. They want to kill him. Everyone knows this. But it's not time for that villain to die yet. So just tell the player that even though they rolled a critical success and spent all their luck points, this is all in their example. Tell them they missed. And, you know, because it's not time for that villain to die yet. Now, I stood up and said, you know, I think your player would rage quit after that. Like, if you, they, you know, they went and made the best role they're going to make this entire night to accomplish their personal goal, and you told them no to their face, that would demolish all confidence in you. But I've had time to think about that. And once again, we get back to performative play. If your players came in with the attitude of, oh, well, I tried, but it's not time for me to succeed yet, then, you know, they might, you know, because I'm assuming that if this actually happened at Robin Laws's table, that the players were cool with it. And it might be that, yeah, if the players understood that. And and so, like me as the old fuddy-duddy game master, you know, I'm, I'm getting used to that. So just like Rob says, you need to plan, you need to, I'm with Rob and I always say you need to have at least a secondary plan of like what if stuff goes differently but also if you want to run a heavy performative game I'm really just sitting here thinking you should just be upfront about that I mean the reason why you know the Mercer effect those actors already know coming in that sometimes the GM is going to crush things and make them not go their way and there are some games that do that I know mutants and masterminds uh, ha, you know, has built into the rules, you can tell the players no at any time and give them a hero point as a consolidation. Uh, and, and that's kind of a divisive subject. There are also like other things that can add to that. Like, for example, you know, you say, oh, we killed the villain early. But did you kill the villain's lieutenant? Or did you kill his, dep- you know, his deputy or anybody who would be like a minor character that can ascend to that role? I mean, like, like oh, yeah. how, how is the plan like, still going after that? I mean, exactly, I, I, exactly. Like, it, you, there's this is where like a little bit of improv can also do it. Like, you don't even have to change like the numbers too much. You had those villain stats for like when he's on page fifty on that book. Just slot in the next guy who was supposed to be there. Just cross out the name, put in the new one. He's yeah. the new villain. It's not or, Bill anymore. It's Bill. Someone jumps into the power vacuum or something. Like, what? Like, once again, think like you know characters. If the big bad disappeared, what would happen? You know, like if you were a player and your character got killed, you'd have to make another character. So what would you do? And and yeah, uh, the, like the notion that, that the GM is another player in the thing. I mean, the reason why, you know, not to harp too much on that, the reason why I'm always like, you know, angry at story as ironclad is like you're getting into the notion that the players aren't here to change the story. So it means... All this, and I think I've seen this in some games, where they tell you, don't plan too much, don't overthink it, because you can't change it anyway. I mean, there's a scripted combat encounter here where the villain shows up and leaves. You won't meet him again until Act 3. So don't work too hard in Act 1, because you can't win. So, um, you know, if that's kind of the attitude, and all your players are cool with that, that would be fine. But But like we've been saying here, 
the games are still written with the mentality, you know, they don't, the games don't actually really say that to say, make sure your players know that, that are on a script. And, and also we're pretty, we're in the angry camp of, we think the script should go the way the players do. We're pre- right. And, we're and when you have a module, you have like that script, but uh, a lot of people and like uh, us, a lot of the time are like doing your own thing. So nothing's like even written until like we get there, honestly, or, or maybe not even written at all because we're all improvising and we're applying to our players all the time. Um, but I do like this, uh, the idea here that you put out, the GM as a player, and I think, like, at least when I set things up, usually I'll go, all right, here is this character, they have a goal, I have an evil wizard, he wants to destroy the world, and I go, all right, what things does he need to do to accomplish this that'll make something, like, at least slightly interesting happen? Because if he just casts a spell to destroy the world, there's no story there, he just did it and the game's over, it's like, that wouldn't be fun. So he has to go get three things or something. And I go, all right, so if these are his goals, what does he need? What resources does he have? And like you said, play him like a player. He's spending things. He's doing moves in a general sense according to what he knows or expects. Uh, Because nobody's planning for, like, four heroes exactly to come by and, like, accidentally stumble upon it and try to stop him. Well, they should be if they're real villains. (laughs) They should be, especially if the players have already announced themselves and said, we are coming to stop you. At that point, it's probably wise to go, what do I know about them? And say, all right, you cast fire magic all the time. I will have fire resistance. Well, here, here we are I'm getting, expecting it. Yeah, because here we you, are getting you off play of against the, these things. Getting, um, off, getting off of the, the DM track, because, uh, I mean, like, I'm, I, I'm always taking the position that the players are supposed to be extraordinary individuals, which, by the way, is not where D&D comes from. D&D, you were supposed to suck. Right. You, it's you're stimulation to, more than that. You were you, roguelike. You were supposed to get through four or five characters before you got a good one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they don't talk about that as much anymore. Um, but nowadays, you spend a lot of time generating your character's hopes, dreams, outlook, personality, everything. That You, know, you spend an hour on it, so you get invested. And so the players are supposed to be, you know, of unusual ability. Their stats are higher. They're allowed to cast spells and use feats and that sort of thing. So they should be meeting a lot of, um, I mean, I'm always under the impression they should be meeting a lot of people that they outclass. You're not, you know, the yeah. whole challenge rating thing is, you know, they should be. So when a villain has a sort of plan, the heroes show up to upset the apple cart. In fact, one good thing I've been seeing in games like, Powered by the Apocalypse and Blades in the Dark is the concept of a clock. The idea that if this much time passes, this event will happen. And so someone needs to intervene on this clock or progress meter here to keep it from happening. And yeah, that's and in one... terms of like playing people as characters, having that clock is good as the abstraction instead of trying to figure out the specifics. It's it's a way of creating your game mechanic and announcing to your players this is what's happening. Right now they know there's a time pressure, so they won't dick around, which is another video game problem. But uh, that also makes it feel like a little more. Re- and then of course you know like you'll see in these games like you know, uh, that they have to establish okay if the clock ticks out this will happen, but you also have to provision for what if it doesn't happen because mm-hmm. you know l- l- like what if they succeed and what if they don't succeed? And I like to see that more. Like you mentioned uh, with um, you know. The huge problem that a game like D&D has being reductive of here are the evil people and they want to destroy the world. Well, if you fail, they destroy the world. The campaign's over. Yeah, you know, uh, and 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 that's not very interesting. So, um, so it has to be expanded out from there. 
But one thing I think that we're all going to agree on, like with Rob does, because I remember always the outlier on, on Session Zero, is you really want to get to know your players and what they want to do to make sure that kind of stuff is happening. Yeah. You want to have the challenges that the players are there to try to solve, right? So um, what do you, what, I mean, I should put this out for the table. What do you do to make sure that the game is more like what the players want? Uh, let's toss it at red first. You got an answer for that one? <laughs> uh, I said before that, and it's a tip that I should take to heart and actually use more than I do. I do think that there's value in having access to your players' character sheets and to actually spending a little bit of time reviewing them, even if it's just at the beginning of the game. Um, this is also stuff that tends to come out in Session Zero, but when you listen to your players talk about their characters, they'll usually be very clear about what it is that they think makes their character special or fun to play. Um, and when you hear that, it's like when you're shopping for Christmas presents or something. Whenever someone you care about says, oh, I would really like this thing, but I can't get it, you should make a note. At least I do, because I have a terrible memory. So when people talk about their characters, I try to keep like a note, like add it to my notes, keep it handy, kind of think about what it is that... I, I like to try to think about what it is that each player wants to see their character do in the game. Like, what would be an ideal win or moment? You know, oh, this character is the getaway driver. He only really gets to shine when there's a chase scene away from the bank heist, right? Which means that it would pay off really well if we could engineer ourselves a chase scene here some way or another. And even if I'm not, like, planning for it to happen, I'm always keeping an eye out on where it could happen. And you can kind of nudge the game in that direction during play. So that's how that's my approach for like the player problem. Yeah, for me over here, I have two different ways that I do. The first is that uh, it's to pay very close attention to your players, what they're doing and saying in game and how they're acting. Because like you said, they they will tell you what they are interested in and they will show that off in game. They'll characterize themselves that way. And you can take those things and you can just use them as your new uh, ideas. You, you can throw it back to them eventually. The, the other part, if you're not paying attention, is literally to just sit down and go, all right, guys, so this was fun today. What do you guys want to do next time? And just ask them. So it's like, hey, what are you guys looking to do? And so this is like a uh, part of where like Raph critiqued like the session zero before. It's like nobody knows what they want to do before they get there. Uh, but once you're playing the game, they will slowly have a better idea of kind of like what things they're looking forward to do. Or if something came up during the game, they might suddenly have a new idea of like, I would like to go actually and get the deck of many things now because I need to get like three wishes or something. And now you have like some impetus. You have an idea of what they want and maybe even how about they want to go about getting it to. Because they have to plan and they're going to plan in front of you. Some of that planning That's also true. just comes out in the character generation as well. Like I, I mm -hmm. uh, what Red said about like um, what the characters are doing. I'm assuming you were talking about like a session zero type of thing, like what their character is, what it says on the sheet. That could also be elaborated on further by getting into the sort of the the head, if you will, of the player, just by going through like simple questions: Who's your mom? Who's your dad? Who, your character's mom and dad, obviously. Like, you know, we're going with the kindergarten cop thing. Like, who's your daddy? What does he do? Um, you know, and Rafi's cracking up at that one. 
But it's also, but something simple like that, you know, why are you in this situation right now? Why are you in this particular town at this particular moment? You know, why are you a fighter or a cleric or a thief or whatever? Uh, what skills do you have? Do you have any friends, any family? Some games bake that in in the mechanics. You know, uh, I, it's been a while since I've done like a werewolf or vampire, but I know that's like sometimes part of it. Uh, Shadowrun does that as well with like your contacts and stuff like that. You know, a lot of games, though, whether it's like Ironclaw, D&D and whatnot, that stuff, I would say session zero or point five, whatever you want to call it, have that Q&A. And then you continue that Q&A going forward because, A, you're getting into the mindset of the players. Okay. Some of it might be made up on the spot. I'll think of a name later for mom and dad or whatever. Others, oh, I come prepared with this stuff, and this is what we want to do, you know? And, you know, I have a dark and secret past. Oh, good. I have a wizard that you might have to fight at level 10 who might fit that dark and secret past going, you know, long game here. So it's a little bit of prep on your, on your end as a GM to keep that in the back of your mind to make it more special and get more, atten you know, attentive for that player in that regard second thing debriefings and i know uh you know iron claw actually yeah no iron claw actually sets that up as a part of its own mechanics um you know what the debrief is i'm a big fan of doing those uh i fully admit sometimes i forget we should to do them but every you know everybody's human but it is a good way to open up the line of communication because the key to all of this is always communication at the end of the day, if your players are comfortable in saying, I really like this, you know, it could be something as simple as I'm glad you're not pulling any punches. Good. That means the game is actually deadly and challenging to them. You as the GM know, okay, so I have permission to kill your players. And they can die at any time. There is threat there. You know, something as simple as like saying that could be like the communication, even if they're not saying it directly, I'm glad that you can kill my players is what you can discern from it. And then allow that to maybe not dictate is the right word here, but allow that to uh, help you play the game going forward as the GM, you know, to borrow some of what Norman was saying. Yeah. And I like uh, what you said about the backstory there. And I think it does bring up like a, a toolbox thing. That's like good to use. And that's to, uh, explore or at least like get a brief idea of what players would want each individually as like their personal antagonist and maybe a personal friend. And these both have their own purposes. The personal antagonist is there to draw players to them to like give them the reason to go and do something. It's like, well, I didn't care about saving the world, but then I found out like Mr. Jerk was a part of it, so now I gotta go beat him up. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh okay. oh, okay. Uh, and the other one there, which is the personal friend, is that uh, I find as a tool, it's good to have a character around who the players in character could go and talk to, and I, as the GM, can actually go ahead and coach them in character towards different ideas or possible conclusions. That's kind of a, a conversation tool that kind of happens a whole lot. You talk to your players, you try to coach them, you try to give them advice. Um, but it does it's not often very diegetic if you're just there like participating uh directly with them so having a character in the scene who likes them who they like and 
they're listening to their advice makes it kind of more interesting. And of course, you can characterize it according to, you know, that perspective, too. I would well, tag up on that and okay. say um, that they're, if you wanted to do a more general thing, and I like toolboxes, I like, like, cool little tricks that you can use. One thing that I have found is useful and is less specific, but is along the same lines um, as what you just said, Griff, is creating, is keeping a list of, of like, narrative resources that the characters have which could include things like NPCs that they hold dear, but could also be like places or goals that they hold dear, things that they specifically want their characters to be able to do or things that their characters care about because so much of improvising and also of coming up with storylines, if you're not working off of a, a pre-made adventure is um, well, is reacting to that kind of stuff or building stories around those details it also yeah. helps to have pain points, right? If your characters are determined to break all of the rules of the land and all you can think of doing is throwing more and more low-level soldiers at them to try to arrest them, instead think of ways that their failures or their negative actions could actually apply to these pain points, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that gives them the motivation. And right. uh, one of the jokes here is like, you know, you set up like all these things that people are supposed to care about and then they like care about Boblin the Goblin over in the background well, of the tavern. They're asking him everything, but he becomes you know, a tool for you. See, I want to address that because, like, uh, like one one thing I'm ang angry about in games is that there are people who come to the table and have made long and involved backstories for their characters, and we talk about how you should ask yourself what are your characters' hopes and dreams. And I've got problems with that because not you're going to have three, four, six people at your table. Not everyone is here to do that. Uh, some people are here because they want to upset the apple cart. They wanted to come to a game and make shit happen. And you have a huge problem in today's modern games, which are very player-centric. Because when I start a character in D&D or Pathfinder, there are all these books that are promising me I can throw fireballs, I can animate the dead, uh, I can talk to gods, I can teleport... All this cool stuff in later books, but I don't have that now. That's at level later. So my, a lot of people come to the table with their growth already planned, or they came to the table, they already wanted to throw fireballs, and you said, nope, not to level five. So there are some people there who, who are like very, they want to make a powerful character, and they've got their headset on like, this is going to be so cool when I've got whirlwind attack. This is going to be so awesome when I can do all this cool stuff. And so they want to do cool stuff in your game. So if you ask them, well, what was your character's mother like? It's like, Shh. you know, like, I don't yeah, care. Yeah, their perspective is different here. That's not I what mean, they're here for. Kratos is a popular character. What's his backstory? He killed his entire family, and now he's going to kill you. Boom! Done! He's basically Hercules. Um, yeah. I mean, now now he's on an Hercules escort. Hercules yeah, okay, hey, I'll good. talk about that in a sec. Right, but I mean, like, that's what I'm kind of, like, one thing I think that's a, kind of a failure of gaming is that they all, like, there's a lot of, there'll be one section of the game that's devoted to talk to your characters with a big involved backstory and always compel them to write part of the narrative. You know, performative stuff. And then there'll be another section in your book of, here's a bunch of combat rules that if you roll badly or make mistakes, we'll just fucking kill you. Uh, and, and you'll be dead forever. So there's a combat over here. And then these two sections are completely separate from each other. And and there's no provision being made for 
what about the person who wants to engage the world and grow their character and make changes in it? Because backstory is all passive stuff that the character reacts to. I mean, I know you can work it in there and that kind of stuff, but also some people won't have that. And the combat stuff is very crunchy and in the rules, very punishing. Like, I think it's telling that some people are saying, do I have permission to kill your character? We're playing oh, D&D. Yeah. Hobgoblins do 2d6 plus 2 coming out of the gate. They're here to kill you. Yeah. So, um, yeah. you know, you're, you're getting the, we're, we're getting those mixed messages. And that's, like, part of being a good GM, like we said, is you have to deal with those mixed messages. But really, I guess this all goes back to when we talked about communication, which I think is a big word. The huge problem I have, you, you, it, you can read people's character sheets and you can learn the rules. But the problem is everyone will also tell you that the game is what you make up. It's what you improvise. And so the most important communication is you must talk to your players. And like, I'm also a big fan of debriefing. Just ask them what they want to do. Um, yeah, I, I think a huge problem uh, I've run into is if you're just looking at someone's character sheet, you can say, well, I can see your backstory is pretty blank and I don't see anything in your sheet. You're going to totally miss that one, you know, the very common player who's like, I'm just killing time until I get to raise the dead. I came to play a necromancer. Everything right now is filler until I get to where I want to be. And you told me I could get there. The book says at level nine, I can start doing this. And yeah. you'll get, um, you know, uh, you know, th- these are people who, you know, and once again, that was the rules communicated to them, not now, but later. And if you as a GM miss these cues that the player is, I want to earn enough experience points to be the badass. Like, like Red said, you know, the badass on the front cover of the book. No game lets you be the badass on the front cover of the book. They don't let you be Drizzt or Elminster. You have to work your way up to that. And, and so there'll be some people who want to be that, but you told them they had to level up. There's going to be some people who are working towards that. And if your game starts presenting them with too much story or scripted story so they can't be badass... They're going to get upset. And if your game has too much combat that they don't want, or even worse, not enough combat, like where the combats are all scripted and just end a certain way and it's not challenging and they're not having fun, you know, these are all things you could miss if you don't read the room and talk to your players directly. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. A note on the backstory. I think there's always this perspective that like your past has to be super important and defines everything about who you are. And, Honestly, if you're playing a level one character, you're you're at the start of the book. Your your character hasn't done anything. They're starting to become interesting. This oh, is hey, where yeah. stuff actually becomes hey, exciting now. Can, can I complain about something? I'm always complaining. Absolutely. About something. Well, wait, wait. Can I just oh, jump in and just ahead. say that there's that there's like the writing. Uh, it's like a writing guideline that if you're writing a story about a character it should be the most interesting part of that character's life, right? If something yeah. more interesting happened in the past, you should have been writing a story about that, right? That's what we're here to see. So, but continue. Yeah. It applies to games as well, I think. Okay. But the, and I agree with that. But the, the quick thing I want to punch at is, so people will, you know, there's a, there's a learning tax fallacy where people say, I can't be bothered to learn a whole new game. I can only play D&D because I'm not smart enough to learn the mechanics of a new game. Okay, let's talk about your backstory for a moment. So if I sit down to play your stupid homebrew D&D game, where the hell am I supposed to learn how your world works? Yeah. (laughs) 
does your GM give you information about that, or are they just leaving oh. you take to pull Oh, they wrote like three paragraphs and put that up on Roll Twenty. Yeah, and that's for, all the information you get. and a half the GMs <laughs> only like improvise something like three paragraphs. And also, so I'm so this is a game. And I'm supposed to play it to have fun. I got to read your 500 pages of fanfic before I get started. And even then, like, what if we're just using a pre-published one, like Pathfinder? Now, I'm not here to. <laughs> I mean, like, I'm not here to make fun of it, but also it's like people tell me how great Pathfinder is, and then no one can tell me any of the lore. Would you <laughs> like me? All right, do you want me to talk about the uh, barbarians that have a spaceship in their land? What is or... the name of the kingdom where they worship demons and devils? Cheliax. Thank you. We had a huge conversation where no one could remember that, including me. Oh, wow. Right. So I definitely like... understand that. And like going from 3.5 to Pathfinder, I just did not care. I mean, 100%. I'm not, yeah, I'm fair not That's here true. to shame anybody who likes Pathfinder and like that, but also, like, I have to point out that if you go play Pathfinder, you have to learn a shit ton more lore all of a sudden. And I was, yeah. I've been in Pathfinder games where I'm bringing up lore that I've read out of the books, and the GMs are just looking at me funny, which yeah. really gets into yeah. another problem I have of, like, you know, lore, like, getting back to Mercer Effect and, kind of, and improv and that kind of stuff, lore is the enemy of improv. Because, um, yeah, uh, or it should. Well, it should be. Let me rephrase. It that. shouldn't be, but continue. I mean, the yeah, the huge problem is is like if there's a lot of lore and it tells you you can get away with things and that kind of stuff. Lore is a learning tax to get into the game, because if I start quoting lore and saying, "Hey, the backstory of the world says this," or the character who can do this or that kind of thing, my my, you know, like the reason why I'm a, I have stopped writing backstory is because I got tired of invoking all of these details and doing research on stuff when it it didn't pay off. And by paying off, I mean it didn't change anything. If I was a, a Mercer-style actor where I'm just here to show off in front of the crowd and show off my acting chops, I'd be fine. But if my background was that I'm part of a devil-worshipping society and that affects my outlook and my philosophy and how we deal stuff, or, God forbid, I play somebody like Nobility or a Merchant who actually has social status. You may notice that D&D tries to tell you you don't. Mm -hmm. You know, like Nobility is, eh, maybe it matters. Um, and you try to invoke details of the world, like, hey, they have a specific Red Guard or the Purple Riders to deal with this exact problem. We should appeal to the authority that's in the lore to deal with this problem and not get killed ourselves. You know, every GM hates that. Ugh, you're, no, no, you players are supposed to deal with it. Don't call the cops. I know the lore says there are cops, See, and they're higher level than you. I actually got to push back on that, because I love when my players do that. Well, you, you're a good game master. You <laughs> like you, well, Rob. Right, fair enough. But like, we love you, Rob, by the way. <laughs> but the reason why I love that is because that's where they, that means you're doing your job, because as a GM, you know, I, I think like we can sum it up, like three things. Be prepared. Communication is key. And the last part is, if your players are having fun, you should be having fun too. If your players are that invested in what's going on, that they are appealing to the authority of this land of make-believe that is in front of you, that they're going to forget the Hell Knight order of the chain after like the session is done or whatever, and that's just something pulled out of my ass right now, you know, you've done your job. They're bought in. They are engrossed, engaged. It could be based off of, uh, and I'm also going to push back a little bit on like uh, improv and the lore there. It could be based off the real lore. The improv could just be in the details that you put into yeah, it. I, I, I was being mean. I mean, yeah, usually, right. yeah. 
usually the issue I have is that lore is being used as a hammer to shut me the hell up. I do agree with that, and that's usually like that's the bane of how how mean can I get now? Uh, that's the bane of what I would say uh, very combative players more than GMs. Oh god, in some yeah. cases. Well, no, it's, it's usually my experience. I mean, like I've already complained about this in the past. It's often my experience of a bunch of stuff happened that didn't involve me. So, yeah. and, and doesn't give me any like leverage to fix this. You know, it's like, if you have a big backstory of why Zach Saroth or Minas Tirith fell, uh, and that somehow informs me on, we'll meet these kinds of monsters, or we need these kinds of spells, or we can solve this kind of puzzle that would help. Usually what you wind up with is a bunch of backstory. Now here's eight cobbleds in a scripted encounter that you're supposed to kill. By the way, I don't have permission. I, don't, I didn't ask permission to kill you. So you're just going to win this anyway. It's like, there's a lot of backs. It's like, you know, we're, we're world of Warcraft. We're just clicking through all this stuff to get to the quest. Mm-hmm. And, and some, some people at your table will find that immersive. And there will be some people who have the big backstory. I always feel like, you know, once again, back to Mass Effect, Colonel Shepard's a cipher when you start the freaking game. You make everything up about this character while you're playing it. Skyrim, you start off as as what? A sex offender? What are you in, in Skyrim? Every single Elder Scrolls game starts you off as a prisoner. I, I, it has nothing to them and is there entirely by fate. By fate. You've not committed any crime. So you can't make up a backstory that you did commit a crime, which is what I because they faked for you. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I usually like no, no, I, I belong here. Uh, yeah, but I, but I'm a bad person. Don't game with me. So yeah, <laughs> lore sells books, man. I'm just throw that out there. People well, love lore. Sell, love lore wow. books. Uh, you know, it's like lore sells the books, and people want the lore. But uh, I, I, for one, you know, once I'm glad. I am glad for this new direction where people are saying the GM should be thinking more like a player because they also want everyone at the table. And also players should think more like GMs, which I think is probably yes. what I include on oh. here, which is like, like the, there's always the idea that the GM is the only one who has any authority to change the story. And we've seen fits in, you know, fits and starts where like, you'll have a game like spirit of the century. It will say, no, no, spend an aspect point to change the way things are going. Um, and, and, Old school D&D, it used to be you showed up as a cleric. They didn't have a listing of deities in, in D&D 1st or 2nd edition. You just made someone up. In 3rd edition, you could make someone up. And this suddenly invoked a whole bunch of backstory. Uh, they, you, you know, I think it's better now that they give you more guidelines. Like Vampire has a quiz of questions to answer. So you can answer you know, all, some, or none in guiding. But the idea that the player's... I mean, the, the, that's a good thing, too, where it, the GM is the person who has the fiat power and can change rules and stuff. But getting the, the real thing I think we've been talking about here about saying be fair and be prepared, build up and have fun. We should, everyone here has the power to mold the story. The host is the director and has the ultimate authority, but everyone should be molding the story more in the directions of how they want it to go. And we should all be working together to make sure it's a story for all of us. And that's also including the person that is there just to rock the apple cart, like you said before, too. Because even they, they have fun too. not only they have, but not only can they have fun, but even they are molding the story with their actions, with what they're focused on. Right. If they're, if they're raising the dead at level nine, you as GM and the players need to have an understanding what that can do as a complication or as a benefit for 
what's going on in your campaign. I mean, yeah, that's why I'm always complaining. Hey, I showed up your Pathfinder game, so don't be surprised when I'm summoning 13 wolves all in one round, because I wrote summoner on my sheet. You saw the word summoner, right? Well, it's, yeah. funny you, it's funny you say that, because then we also need to also have understanding of how the mechanics work there a little bit, too. You actually have limits on how many you can summon at once, for example. Right, but yeah. don't be surprised when I've not, you know, but that's why I was getting at where you yeah, can't no, really I know where you're going with it. Because I'll eventually max this out to where I have something, I mean, I've played with this in other streams or whatever. Some people will show up and, and you know, like, it's not just, it's not what the sheet looks like now. They're here yeah. to max it out. I'm always on the theory, you can't complain, The this gets into being a better GM, and I like the idea we're talking about players also being GMs. The GM is the universe. You can do whatever the hell you want. The player only gets one player object. So telling the player, okay, you use these rules to make this thing that you obviously want to do in the world. A good GM can't just turn to them and say, okay, I know I told you we were using these rules, but now I've decided you can't do this. I mean, you, you have to work with the player. And uh, uh, like I keep saying, it's especially a big problem in modern games where it's not you, you can't just look at what they're doing now. You have to ask them where they want to go. And you might have to coax them a little bit because some of them, you know, will be here to say, I want to meteor swarm the entire town. You know, I, I want that level of power. It was promised to me in the book. And you either have to tell that player, like, to their face, you will never be able to do that, which I don't think a lot of GMs will, uh, or be ready for it when it happens. Uh, I, I think we, we see way too much of the former. Yeah, I think there's a, as that's actually one of the tips that I had written down. Um, or can dovetail into that, which is specifically um, when you read one of these game books, it's going to tell you a lot of things like, oh, this is kind of how we want the game to feel and to play. And remember, GM Fiat, you always can do, you know, whatever is fun for you and your friends. And I urge people to like internalize that and then forget it and actually look at what the mechanics of the game tell you and your players that you can and cannot do. And prepare for that because people will tell you that their game is a political intrigue game and then we'll have 50 pair pages of rules on like burning things with fireballs and that's the game you're playing ultimately so one thing that can save you a lot of grief down the line if you pick up this game and you think oh good i'm going to tell my game of thrones political intrigue plot and then your players walk in and they cast Meteor Swarm and blow up the entire parliament and everyone, all of your NPCs that you had crafted. That's, I mean, it's it's the game design's fault. We like to blame that. But also, you, you could have seen this coming. You just kind of have to get past the flowery language at the beginning of the book and look at the spell list at the end of the book. So that's another good GM tip coming from yours truly. All right. So let's go ahead and try like getting some more concluding statements. I think like the best one so far was just like literally everyone is at the table to have fun. Make sure you're having fun. That's your primary goal. Um, but I guess like in terms of like fast paced, quick tips for GMs out there. Uh, what do you guys got? I got. Like a uh, I, I had a bunch of tips prepped, and we got to some of them actually, and we also did our routine bitching about Dungeons and Dragons, which I think is important to stay on hey, brand. Vampire, but give us your and tips. some vampire. <laughs> well, no, I'm not going to, because 
I think, like I said, a lot of the good ones we already touched on, there's a lot of, like, practical things, like, don't over-prep, you know, try to get the most playtime out of the least prep time, stuff like that. But the one thing that I would want to leave people with is a philosophical perspective on how you should look at the game, and I think that you get the most mileage out of this, which is for game masters and for your players, you gotta remember that the game happens at the table, um, and what do I mean by that? It's a social game that you're playing with other people, right? It's not a video game, which means all of the time that you put into your personal backstory or the personal lore of your world, all of that stuff that matters dearly to you may not necessarily matter to everyone else. Um, And a lot of times when people focus on those things too much, they end up having a bad time when it comes time to play the actual game, which again is a shared experience. And it's also important because you start to learn what you value and you learn that what you bring to the table only matters so much in so much as what it adds to the group experience at the table. Once again, like your backstory only matters as much as you get to express it in game with your friends at the table. And if they take that and run with it, that's great. If they don't, it was kind of wasted time. So remember the game, it's a table game. It's a game you're playing with your friends, not in your room. Play video games in your room. They're better for it. Uh, Rob, what do you got for, like, fast-paced, quick GM tip? Uh, well, two things actually came to mind. Uh, first one, kill your darlings. Uh, which is um, more so on the GM side of things. Like, we were talking about, like, how, oh, you know, you're not, you can't murder my big bad, like, until he's, like, on page 50 of yeah. the book or whatever. You're there to play to lose. Losing is fun. Yeah, exactly. That's, uh, I would say that's kind of antithetical to the whole point of it, but that's more of a personal belief. Be, don't be afraid for things to go awry like that. If your players cast Meteor and destroy your Senate with all your political intrigue, hey, that's the way the cookie crumbles. All their kids now are going to grow up and try and fight the players like 20 years later, because there you go. You got your next adventure hook right there. Don't be afraid to kill your darlings. Be ready to improvise with what the players do in that regard because things will always go awry. And it's okay that things go awry. It doesn't have to always be on book, on script. Having said that, one other tip I would say, and this is for any GMs out there who are looking to actually try it out for the first time, start small, start simple. Do a one-shot module. Do a one-shot adventure. If there's one that's already been pre-written that everybody says to, oh, this is the one that you should use as your, as your entryway, read it over. See if that's something that you think would work. Uh, if you want to try your hand at writing your own, script out maybe like a, a four-session game with your friends. You know, Maybe your GM for your group will let you like take over for a few weeks so they don't get burned out every week playing. And that way, you know, you can ask for tips while they're in the game playing with you. Hey, how am I doing? Am I doing good? Talk to them about that. Talk to your players about it. You might find you have a hidden talent, maybe good skills to continue doing it, or you really enjoy it. You know, learn from those who do it as well. And try using one-shots to your advantage in that way. What you got, Raph? Oh, I want to echo uh, a lot of what everyone else has said. Uh, I especially like, uh, I mean, I like the phrase, play to lose. Uh, a lot of really good gaming fiction, like, or gaming-oriented fiction, like, like I would just want to point out, like, anime, and especially One Punch Man, uh, one of my favorites, because, like, you'll always see the bad guys show up. They often make a big show of 
bashing their shields or bragging about what they do, and they just get owned. And uh, that is very satisfying to a lot of players. I meet more players who complain about how hard or crushing or difficult a game is more than they complain about, oh, I got my way. A lot of games will warn you, don't make it too easy, you know, don't be Monty Hall, don't make it too fun on them, and they're full of shit. Because uh, once again, you're the GM and you're omnipotent. The players only get the one player object. If the players are finding the game too easy, they'll tell you. Um, and, and yeah, like also what they said, don't overcomplicate. Um, keep it simple. I'm always a fan of like, 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 that's what I worry about when you guys talk about backstory. I worry about GMs writing down all the hopes and dreams of their NPCs and all that kind of stuff and the huge backstory and then burning out on it. They show up with a 500 word backstory for the for their custom homebrew campaign and no one cares and, and they get depressed about it. That, that's going to burn you out. They're never going to find the journal pages scattered everywhere. Well, and also, like, if we wanted to read your big fanfic, we go read your fanfic. Some people came to the table because they really like, you know, the Pathfinder lore and they wanted that. Some people came to the table because they think Deadpool is hilarious. They're going to drop jokes and pop culture references at your table. You know, they're they're here to be wacky and fun, and they don't care. Uh, you're you're going to wind up, uh, and and that's a way to get GM burnout. I'm not saying you can't do it. I'm saying that this this almost definitely will burn you out. And it's the opposite of improv. The idea that if we're treating the game, whether it's performative or whether it's gamery or emergent or whatever, as improv, your your goal is everyone's here to roll with what's going on. Not just dice, but also like this happened, therefore that happened, therefore that happened. It's an emergent experience. And so you should be ready for everything to change because if it, if it wasn't going to change, this wouldn't be improv. This would be scripted. And uh, I agree with everyone. So, like, we got, we got to learn uh, how it's going to roll. Talk to your players, find out what they want to do, um, and, and, and then do what they want to do. And and you can have a lot more fun. Uh, I guess the last secret I would have is, um, you know, as a game master, you don't actually have to know the rules. Uh, one one quick tip: whenever a player says I want to do something, turn around and ask them, "Okay, how would you do that?" or what abilities do you have that will let you do that? And then the player will probably quote what's on page 336 of the rule book that tells them, you know, and then you just let them do that. Or they don't know how it works either, which means you can tell them anything you want. Oh, and God, yes. Know. Nobody uh, knows. Okay, everybody, let's open the book for I'm five just minutes. You a secret. Like, a lot of people will say, doesn't the GM have to know the rules better than the players? No, you don't. You're freaking omnipotent. You can do whatever you want. You can script the end. You know, you, you, you can, you know, if, if, you, if you cheat, and the players recognize it, they'll call you out on it, which was the debriefing it. You don't have to know all the rules. I know a lot of GMs would get nervous about that. Uh, we could probably devote a whole session to that, but that's my quick advice of turn it around. A lot of players will ask you, like your dad or whatever, and say, you know, um, what, how do I do this? It's like, just turn around, ask them how to do it. I mean, they should know it's their character, right? You got the whole universe to run. That's my, that's my very quick advice. Anytime a player says they want to do something, ask them. And like I said, the way I worded it, what abilities does your character have to do this? That can lead yeah. to a lot of good improv. You're working together, and if the player already has a plan, they'll do it. If the player doesn't have a plan, it, that works a lot better than being the authority of just telling them, okay, roll some dice. And, and, and that, that's my quick advice. Even for veteran GMs, ask the player how they plan to do it. All right. And to go ahead and end off on mine, I think I got like two quick points. The first is uh, similar to GM Burnout. Find what your style actually is, like what things you actually sync with and can do well 
and that you can pro produce every week because you're going to be doing this uh, every week. People are going to ask you for new stuff and you got to figure out what you can actually get done in that time, how quickly you can do it and what things you do that other people enjoy and find fun that you can sync with. That's very important to being able to run. Uh, I have strong points. I have weak points. Focus on your strong points. Try to avoid the weak points. Uh, and the second one would be experiment every now and then. Just make up a brand new thing, see how it goes, and see if it is more fun for people. If it's not, it was an experiment, you did it once, throw it away. If it was great, you can keep doing it. And that's kind of an important part to just running games, doing new stuff, and seeing if people like it. So, that's going to be it for today for Notes for the Aleph. We stream episodes bi-weekly Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern. You can come join us live at Twitch at twitch.tv slash We also stream and record weekly tabletop games at the same channel. And you can come join us when we start at 10 a.m., 2 p.m., and 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Sundays and Wednesdays. Norm Rafferty here is a partner and writer at Sanguine Games. Check out sanguinegames.com and join us on the right Twitter. Look forward to the upcoming Book of Course Iron Claw expansion book. Don't forget to check out Red Rabbit and book him for a game over on startplaying.games as Red Rabbit. And of course, be sure to check out uh, Robert over at techcrafter.com and check out all of his writings over there. Dot and net, of course, dot net. Dot net, dot net. And of course, be sure to like, comment, and subscribe, and come see us all again. Until next time, everybody.